Welcome to A Reason for Hope, your question connection with the entire Word of God. We would love for you to join in our conversation. Simply follow us on our Facebook page at Calvary Christian Fellowship of Tucson. If you have a question, email or text us at questionsforhope at gmail.com. Now here's your host, pastor, author, and Bible teacher, Scott Richards, along with his right-hand man, Sean Richards. Well, a very good afternoon, morning, or evening to you. Welcome to another edition of A Reason for Hope. Thank you so much for joining us. As you know, Reason for Hope is our daily journey through God's Word, one question of the heart at a time, and that's where you come in. It's your questions that determine the content of each and every edition of A Reason for Hope. Any question you have about the Bible, any question you have about applying the Bible to your life, any question you have about uh, perhaps defending your faith in the Bible in these increasingly skeptical times, we'll be happy uh, to tackle those issues. If you'd like to talk about the events of the day or even the events of tomorrow through biblical prophecy, all over that as well. Uh, just bring your questions uh, to us. The only standard for our questions, pretty simple. Just make sure it's a sincere question. If you're looking for an answer straight from the Scripture, we'll be happy to entertain it, uh, as uh, we uh, are often want to do some uh, pretty amazing things happening in the world we want to make you aware of in terms of a prophecy update. But before we get to that, uh, Sean, how can people uh, join the broadcast by getting their questions to us? Well, you can email us at questionsforhope at gmail.com. If you'd like to know the proper spelling of that, you can join us on our website or our social media platforms. Our YouTube page is A Reason for Hope. Our Facebook page is Calvary Christian Fellowship of Tucson. However, if you want to avoid the inevitable censorship that we already have and are continuing to experience, feel free to join us as well on our website, calvarychristianfellowship.com, C-A-L-V-A-R-Y, christianfellowship.com. If you click on the Watch Live tab, you'll be sent to ccftucson.online.church, where we are live streaming as well as counting down to the next broadcast whenever that fits in your respective time zone. We'll be able to engage with you face-to-face through those venues, and we'll also have our email address spelled out for you at the bottom of the screen. But since a lot is to be discussed and time is fleeting, we want to make sure we set our first priority of time with the word of prayer. So let's do that and get to this prophecy update. Yeah. Uh, Father, thank you so much that we have this opportunity to be able to draw close to you during this time. We pray for your spirit to be present here. Uh, wherever people are tuning in, we pray that you would uh, touch them and minister to them, encourage them and comfort them, uh, convict them, uh, cause them uh, if they are uh, beginning to wander off the path to uh, discover that it is your ways uh, that are going to truly satisfy them and that your word can as be to them uh, a light under their feet, a lamp under their path. I pray, Father, that all the words we speak here today would be honoring to you. Uh, we ask that you and your word alone would speak and answer the questions that uh, we have the honor of being able to consider during this time. We give it to you in Jesus' name. Amen. That is true. So what's going on? Well, quite a bit. Uh, you know, the theme this week, uh, if you've been with us on our Prophecy Updates, has been wars and rumors of wars. Uh, we uh, topped off uh, the, started off the week by uh, letting you know that Iran is claiming to uh, have uh, 60% enriched uranium, uh, moving towards 90%, which would allow them to be able to build as many nuclear bombs as possible. Some uh, serious uh, galactic-level saber-rattling taking place with one uh, member of the Iranian Republican Guard Corps, a senior member, uh, declaring that Iran not only will have a nuclear 
nuclear weapon, but will have the capacity to turn New York City specifically into, quote, a living hell. Uh, To follow up on that, uh, House Speaker Nancy Pelosi uh, visited Europe and, or I should say Asia, and uh, part of her Asian trip in an unexpected way was uh, becoming uh, one of the highest ranking U.S. uh, officials to visit uh, the island nation of Taiwan. Well, the reason that was significant in terms of wars and rumors of wars is that uh, China considers Taiwan not an independent nation, but a breakaway republic in rebellion and has made a number of statements about uh, taking military means to bring it back under uh, the auspices of the Chinese Communist Party. Well, uh, Nancy Pelosi uh, came and went, uh, but uh, China doesn't seem to be taking this sitting down. Uh, The immediate response of this week came in the form of five live-fire drills uh, earlier today, some within 12 miles of Taiwan, which China deems a breakaway province. The exercise also uh, took place in busy waterways and included long-range live ammunition. This is according to uh, sources from Beijing. Taiwan accuses China of imposing what amounts to a sea and air blockade. Uh, The U.S. said the drills were irresponsible and could spiral out of control. A U.S. aircraft that can track ballistic missiles in flight has taken off from Japan and is heading towards Taiwan as we speak. So uh, we're really not sure what the motivation was behind Nancy Pelosi visiting Taiwan, probably um, since love believes all things. Uh, It was a strong statement uh, that the United States stands with Taiwan. But if you've been with us, we know that our own State Department has made repeated statements uh, that uh, really is a radical departure from standard operating procedure regard the conflict between Taiwan and China. That is to say that uh, the United States does not consider Taiwan an independent nation. This is a first for us. Uh, That led to some very interesting comments that were published in the Washington Times. Former CIA chief uh, William Burns anticipates that uh, the danger of China invading Taiwan will increase as uh, this decade uh, draws to a close. Uh, He uh, stated that uh, Chinese President Xi Jinping is determined to take control of Taiwan, but is studying the lessons of the Russian military shortfalls in the Ukraine before taking action. Uh, Mr. Burns said he would not underestimate Mr. Xi's determination to assert Chinese control over Taiwan through military action in the next few years. Uh, Again, the Chinese leader is working to make sure the People's Liberation Army has the capabilities of a success for a successful invasion of the island, which is about 100 miles off the Chinese coast. Again, one of the uh, pillars of uh, Xi's regime in communist China is to make the takeover of Taiwan a national priority and uh, to focus in on this by having a large-scale military uh, buildup of the People's Liberation Army. Uh, Burns said, I think the risks of an invasion become higher, it seems to us, the further in the decade you get. Uh, Essentially, uh, it's a wait-and-see proposition because, as you know, when Russia invaded Ukraine, the conventional wisdom seemed to be that uh, that Russia would make short work of uh, the Ukraine, that there uh, would be an immediate takeover uh, of this because Russia, again, had such vastly superior military capabilities and such. 
But as you know, things have slowed down to pretty much a uh, slog there in the Ukraine. So it's entirely possible that uh, China is watching from a distance, seeing how all that's going to work out. But that does not mean that uh, they will not take action, particularly if they see the United States in a weakened or divided state. Uh, but wait, there's more. Uh, we also told you, as far as wars and rumors of wars earlier in the week, uh, about the uh, taking out, the announcing of the taking out of uh, the head of uh, ISIS, I, I, I should say the head of Al-Qaeda, who was handled over that uh, role by no less a person than Osama bin Laden. Adnan al-Zawahiri was apparently uh, missiled to death uh, through a drone strike while he was sitting out on a balcony in uh, Kabul, Afghanistan. Well, this is an interesting development because uh, one of the things that we were promised by our withdrawal from Afghanistan was that the Taliban could be trusted to not allow uh, terrorist groups like al-Qaeda to use Afghanistan again as a place to be able to develop their capabilities. Uh, having an individual like al-Zawahiri so confident of his uh, place in security in Kabul that he was known to uh, take his ease at the end of the day on his balcony of his apartment there uh, and hence uh, became vulnerable to that drone strike uh, tells us something. It tells us that al-Qaeda is active in Afghanistan and is developing its uh, wherewithal there again. So once again, wars and rumors of wars. But the biggest one uh, happened just before airtime. Uh, Israel took the initiative in their battle against terrorism. They began by launching what they called Operation Breaking Dawn. Now, what had happened was Israel received actionable intelligence that Islamic Jihad based in Gaza was going to uh, launch a massive terrorist attack against uh, Israeli citizens dwelling in the south around the Gaza Strip. Rather than waiting for that to happen and reacting, Israel took the initiative uh, early on Friday evening, Israel time, by striking multiple targets belonging to the group and killing uh, the uh, military head of Islamic Jihad, a uh, fellow by the name of Tasir al-Jabari. Uh, Defense Minister Benny Gantz has approved a draft call uh, order of over 25,000 soldiers in Israel for reserve duty for operational purposes. Uh, they have also moved a number of the uh, Patriot missile batteries down to the south. Uh, the uh, Islamic Jihad faction in Gaza has responded by launching over 100 missiles into Israeli territory, uh, as far as we know, right before airtime. Uh, in addition, uh, Israeli Air Force jets and drones were targeting two additional cells that were on the way to uh, carry out anti-tank missile attacks, killing at least 12 Islamic Jihad operatives that were trained to operate such weapons. Military bases and buildings used by the operatives have also been targeted. So IDF uh, warplanes have attacked multiple sites within Gaza, which manufactured material for the production of rockets. Uh, they have taken out one of their major leaders. Islamic Jihad says it is fired at IDF aircraft, but none were reported hit. So uh, once again, uh, we see things heating up in Israel. Uh, the uh, government, uh, the official government spokesman for the IDF said we couldn't allow Islamic Jihad to carry out an attack. In fact, it backfired on them. There will be rocket barrages. There may also be casualties. 
All this is clear, and we are making this uh, development available and known to the public. Any uh, one within 80 kilometers of the Gaza border is now uh, sheltering in place in bomb shelters in Israel uh, right now. And uh, it is uh, very interesting to see uh, what will happen with Hamas. Now, Islamic Jihad is one of the terrorist factions that uh, hold sway in Gaza. Hamas is the other faction that holds sway there. Uh, there are actually three uh, of these factions that are swaying for the, or vying for the hearts and minds of the uh, Palestinian uh, people in and around uh, Israel, and that is Islamic Jihad, uh, who by their name's very definition tell us what they're all about. Then you have Hamas. According to the Hamas Charter, what does Hamas exist to do? To drive Israel into the sea. Okay. Then you have the Palestinian Authority, which is headed by Mahmoud Abbas, a man who has now overstayed his term-limited welcome as the head of the Palestinian Authority by some 11 years. Uh, essentially, uh, the Palestinian Authority uh, combats Israel not through overt military attack. They are not allowed to have their own army. But they are the ones that are responsible for the uh, uh, tactic known as uprisings, uh, the intifada. Maybe you've heard that term before, where uh, terrorist uh, operatives uh, basically uh, make uh, use of the fact that they are allowed to work or travel within Israel and attack uh, Israeli citizens and buses and so forth. So all three of these work in tandem. Now, to the far north, you have Hezbollah, which is the Iranian puppet that essentially controls uh, the government of Lebanon. You have the Syrian government, or uh, al-Assad, uh, who is uh, basically struggling to stay alive at this point, and as such, not a super direct threat to Israel. But the fact of the matter is, uh, it'll be interesting to see if any of these other terrorist groups that surround Israel join in in uh, response to this particular operation. I would say, Sean, the most interesting part of all of this is the fact that uh, in the past, Israel has waited for its terrorist enemies to strike and then has struck back. Now we see them uh, taking uh, preemptive strikes, not only against uh, the uh, wherewithal that Islamic Jihad, Jihad would have to attack, but against their key leadership as well. Uh, tying this in to what happened to al-Zawahiri in Afghanistan, we may be seeing a sea change in how the so-called war on terrorism is conducted rather than waiting for terrorist operations to take place. It seems like there is a more proactive approach. Uh, how Iran, who essentially is the one who calls the tune for all of these terrorist groups, is now going to respond Boy, that is something we've really got to pray about. If Iran is as close to developing nuclear weapons as uh, they have admitted, and uh, seemingly uh, without any kind of uh, worries about international sanctions or any kind of consequence, uh, it will be interesting to see if uh, Iran decides to get involved through their drone program, through ballistic missile attacks, or, or uh, even announcing that they've uh, gone nuclear. So definitely we're seeing a birth pain, according to Matthew chapter 24, and definitely it is our prerogative and, and our privilege to be able to be praying for the peace of uh, Jerusalem during this time.
Yes, and if you need any further updates on this, uh, there's some resources we'd recommend to stay up to date. Yeah. Of course, the Twitter page is obviously going to be notoriously negative and unreliable. What resources would you recommend? Well, uh, probably uh, the best would be the Calvary Prophecy website. Um, CalvaryProphecy.com, yeah. headed by Terry Malone, and he also has a YouTube page, a Getter account, and many others under the same name. Yeah, I, I would say that is a good place to go. Uh, the Jerusalem Post, I believe, will give you some uh, pretty good secular news updates about what is happening. Uh, we mentioned before there's another uh, news site called uh, debka.com, D-E-B-K-A.com. Uh, our good friend and tour guide, Ronnie Simone, I asked him about how authentic that is. He believes that Debka is tied into uh, the Mossad, which is the Israeli equivalent of our CIA, and will release information, but uh, will release information with a definite agenda that it is pushing. Uh, sometimes you do get uh, a picture, a view of what's going on through Debka that uh, beats all the other sources to the punch, uh, but it should always be taken uh, with uh, that kind of grain of salt. But it's a fascinating website nonetheless. So let us know again if those are all clear and informative for you, and also if there are any audio issues. We seem to be having some uh, monkey business going on with the streaming software. We'll keep an eye on that as well. Going out to your questions, uh, speaking of Calvary Prophecy, Isaiah wants to know, will Ezekiel 38 and 39 take place before or after the rapture? Uh, Isaiah, in short, we hold the opinion that it will take place after the rapture. There are fair arguments on both sides, but we obviously will provide our own. Yeah. What reason do we have to believe it will take place after the rapture? And uh, just as a summary, there's generally four views on this. They would either say Ezekiel 38 and 39 is fulfilled in Revelation 20. There are very many problems with that. Yeah. There is the belief that it will happen at the beginning, the offset of the tribulation. That is somewhat, so like immediately after the rapture, all the nations panic, gather together, and invade Israel. Um, kind of iffy, but there's some arguments to be made. We'll at least give them that much. There's the position that the uh, invasion will take place before the rapture. This is how it was commonly portrayed in certain uh, biblical end times media like Left Behind, and they have reasons for doing so. And then finally, our position, we believe it would fix itself at around the halfway point yeah. of the tribulation. Now, obviously, we're going to give our fairest uh, argument to our own position. <laughs> yeah, that's yeah the if one you, we... you want to set up your own podcast and give your position on that feel free. Yeah, and uh, by the way, uh, Terry Malone would hold the position of the halfway point. You can hear it on his website, but this is ours. Uh, what reason would we have for the halfway point? Yeah, one of the most uh, interesting aspects of the Gog and Magog invasion, and now for those of you who uh, are not, uh, say, up to date on what we're talking about here, in the book of Ezekiel 38 and 39, we are told that there will come in the last days and in the end times an invasion of of Israel that will be led by an individual called Gog of the land of Magog, the prince of Rosh, Meshech, and Tubal. Now, uh, this person Gog could be a proper name. It could be a title for all we know. But uh, the Gog and Magog invasion refers to a coalition of nations that in the last days, we are told, will invade Israel and uh, will seemingly be on the edge of overwhelming it until God supernaturally intervenes and wipes them out on the mountains of Israel. God will directly uh, defend his people along this line. That's a 
Cliff Notes version of Ezekiel 38 and 39. The timing of it, I believe, coincides with the midway point of the tribulation for this reason. Uh, we are told in verse 10 of Ezekiel chapter uh, 7, or I guess it could be in verse 7, it says, prepare yourself and be ready, you and all your companies that are gathered together about you, and be a guard for them. After many days, you will be visited in the latter years, and you will come into the land of those who have been brought back from the sword and gathered from many people on the mountains of Israel, which had long been desolate. Well, now here we see a prophecy that we have seen fulfilled in our time. Israel, after being exiled from the land, scattered uh, uh, to almost uh, every corner of the globe, now uh, being back together in Israel. They were brought out of the nations, and now all of them, now notice, dwell safely. You will ascend, coming like a storm, covering the land like a cloud, you and all your troops and many peoples with you. Thus says the Lord God, on that day it shall come to pass, your thoughts will arise in your mind, and you will make an evil plan. You will say, I will go up against the land of unwalled villages. I will go to a peaceful people who dwell safely, all of them dwelling without walls and neither having bars nor gates to take plunder and to take booty, to stretch out your hand against the waste places that are again inhabited and against a people gathered from the nations who acquired livestock and goods and dwell in the midst of the land. Sheba, Dedan, and the merchants of Tarshish. This is references to the major cities of Saudi Arabia, as well as Tarshish being a reference to Europe. Uh, Tarshish being associated with uh, modern Spain uh, will say to you, have you come to take plunder? Have you gathered your army to take booty, to carry away silver and gold, to take livestock and goods and great plunder? So, you know, a couple things about this that I think indicate that we are dealing with a midway point tribulation fulfillment of this. First of all, the motivation for this invasion is twofold. Number one motivation is the fact that Israel is dwelling in safety with its defenses down. Now, as we said in our opening prophecy update, you can say an awful lot of things about Israel these days, but dwelling safely with their defenses down, not so much. Something has to happen in order for Israel to be at a place where their guard is completely down, where they are confident in their ability to live at peace. Well, the book of Revelation tells us that when the Antichrist comes to power, uh, the calling cry of the world is going to be who is like the beast and who is able to make war with him. In Revelation, and I should say in Isaiah 28, uh, we are told that Israel will make a covenant with death and will seek to find its shelter and its defense under its covenant with death. God says your covenant with death is going to be set aside. It's going to bring you to ruin. So uh, when we talk about a covenant with death, uh, Israel is literally going to make a security deal with the devil, if you will. Uh, at this point, and uh, at, at that point. And for three and a half years, it's going to appear to work. The world will say who's like the beast and who's able to make war with him. But we see in the book of Revelation that after three and a half years, the false peace that the Antichrist brings into power is going to begin to fall apart. Uh, and we believe that the event that is going to, in a sense, send the rest of the judgment dominoes falling is when uh, the, this coalition of nations headed up by the tribal people group uh, that make up modern Russia 
Turkey is another very prominent nation that is involved with this particular invasion. We are also uh, told that Iran, Persia, is going to be a definite part of all of this. And, and it's fascinating because Persia has never been an enemy of Israel until the fall of the Shah and the rise of the Ayatollah Khomeini and the Islamic uh, mad mullahs who run the show there now. Uh, so we do see that, that kind of switch and that prophecy being fulfilled. We also see that their motivation is to take booty, that is to have a financial gain as a result of that. Now, that had puzzled prophecy experts for quite a few years because Israel, you know, again, reclaimed the land. Uh, the prophecies about the land being desolate now blooming again. Read uh, uh, Ezekiel chapters uh, 36 and 37 leading into 38 and 39. You'll see how God prophesied that this would happen. Uh, that uh, not only you would see the land restored, you would see the people physically restored and then later spiritually restored, leading to this prophecy of this last day's invasion. But uh, prophecy experts would scratch their heads saying, well, okay, but, you know, why would uh, someone be invading Israel to take uh, spoil because uh, they really don't have anything aside from tourism, if you will, maybe some high-tech enclaves but uh, no oil resources to speak of. Every other nation in the Middle East, aside from maybe Jordan and Lebanon, has some oil resources. Israel does not. Why in the world would anybody invade? Ah, what happens? Well, off the coast of Israel in the Mediterranean, two large gas tracks, natural gas tracks, have been discovered. One called Tamar, the other called Leviathan, very biblically-sounding names. These gas tracks are so large that they can not only supply all of the energy needs for Israel for maybe a couple centuries, but also make Israel a rival even with Russia as far as uh, supplying natural gas to Europe and the West. So if these gas tracks are everything they're cracked up to be, and they certainly are, we've even seen some saber rattling between Hezbollah and Lebanon and Israel. Hezbollah saying, we're going to launch missiles at you if you open up another one of these uh, gas extraction plants out there. They're definitely worried about all of this. And Russia is very worried about this because it stabs at the heart of uh, their economy, one of their main pillars of their financial stability is exporting natural gas to the West. So, you know, again, we see that being fulfilled there. Now, why do we see this at the halfway point? Well, the first half of the tribulation is going to be a time of peace and safety. And then something is going to happen that takes peace and safety away and brings in the event called the abomination that causes desolation. The book of Daniel and uh, the book of Matthew, chapter 24, but specifically 2 Thessalonians, chapter 2, identify this uh, abomination that causes desolation as when the Antichrist will go into a rebuilt Jewish temple. According to Daniel, uh, the Antichrist will make a strong covenant with many nations and will allow Israel to rebuild its temple on its historic site. So uh, when Israel is able to do that and is living under the Antichrist protection, at the three-and-a-half-year mark, Russia and its coalition will see this as a great opportunity to be able to strike, and strike they will. But the Bible says God will wipe them out on the mountains of Israel with, among other things, fire and brimstone from heaven. So very interesting development, especially in light of the fact that Revelation 13 tells us that the false prophet who's the Antichrist protege, what does he do as far as a sign and a wonder verifying the uh, power and uh, 
in position of the Antichrist. Continue on. I'm uh, well, monitoring tech okay. issues here. He, he uh, calls down fire out of heaven. So uh, very interesting possible scenario here. Israel lives at peace for three and a half years, rebuilds their temple. Uh, they join the course of the other nations in their covenant with death, saying who's like the beast and who's able to make war with him. Russia and their enemies see this as the great opportunity to do what they've always wanted to do, and that is wipe out Israel. God supernaturally intervenes and wipes out Israel. The Antichrist then comes in and says, whoa, 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 wait a minute. It wasn't the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob that did that. By the way, I'm the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. I am the true God. Worship me. Uh, because at that midway point of the tribulation, we're going to see that uh, the entire world will then have uh, the mark of the beast economic system instituted. The entire world will worship the beast or not be able to participate in the economy. The so-called mark of the beast is going to be a part of all of this. And uh, for that final three and a half years, a couple things are going to be true. First of all, the more uh, dramatic uh, plagues and judgments that we see described in the book of Revelation are going to be falling in one volley after another, leading up to the Battle of Armageddon. The book of Daniel, chapters 11 and 12, talk about the military maneuvering that's going to happen during that time. The Antichrist's false peace is going to be shattered. Then we are also told that during that time, the Antichrist is going to declare war on Israel. Well, why will he declare war on Israel? Well, if he goes into the temple, declares himself God to be worshipped, we are told, for instance, in uh, the, uh, the book of Zechariah, uh, chapter 12, that two-thirds of Israel is going to be wiped out by the Antichrist. In other words, uh, Ezekiel tells us that after God supernaturally intervenes and destroys this huge invading army supernaturally, uh, Israel's going to know that the Lord's God. I mean, read Ezekiel 39. They're never going to turn to idols ever again. And if you are the Antichrist and a big part of your spirituality is bowing down and worshiping an idol that's made in your image and likeness, well, you better believe it's going to be open season on the Jews. So the reason we take that midway point of the tribulation point of view is that it causes all of these threads that we see in prophecy to come together. Uh, the idea of it happening pre-rapture uh, doesn't stand up because Israel's not going to be living at peace till the Antichrist comes to power. Uh, it happening at the beginning of the tribulation period Probably not going to happen because uh, that is uh, going to be a time where Israel is going to be about the business of building their temple and being under this uh, protection that the Antichrist is going to have for three and a half years. Most sensibly, I think, bringing all the prophetic threads together, we have that scenario where after three and a half years of peace, Israel's enemies seize the fact that Israel's guard is down, invade, wiped out supernaturally. The Antichrist then comes to the temple, says, no, I'm the one who did it. Look, here's my protege, the false prophet. He'll call down fire right in front of you right now to prove it. And at that point, Israel will say, okay, do we believe you or our lion eyes? No, we're not going to believe you. We're not going to worship you. And from that point onward, the Antichrist is going to go after Israel with a vengeance that would make the Holocaust look like a walk in the park. Yep. Zacharias says two-thirds will be wiped out initially. But the point then still being made, what about the other views? Well, again, you can find those who hold those other views, and they can defend their position more substantially. All parties involved do agree there is no 
prophecy that needs to be fulfilled before the rapture will take place. So note that's not a precursor, and the people who hold alternative views than ours don't think Gog and Magog is required for the Lord to come back first. Yeah. Also note as well, when we're talking about this issue, the point of emphasis that needs to be made again and again and again is this. If we're talking about these issues and reconciling the most data, like any other prophecy that doesn't lay out a timeline explicitly, which they do, this isn't one of them. And so we need to, as you saw, reconcile it with the most data. We believe this is sufficient. You can find other views that will provide other data and say, this is why I would hold that position. So note, this is not a, a salvation issue, but this yep. is the reason why we'd hold this conclusion. Yeah. Hey, uh, before uh, we move on, one other thing I want to say, I saw it in the uh, comments here. Uh, our good friend, uh, Mike Coyle, uh, wished me a happy birthday. By the way, he did more than wish. Uh, this uh, wonderful shirt I'm wearing right now, Mike gave to me. And as you can see, I have uh, the U of A's uh, logo here right right over my heart. So yes. Mike definitely knows uh, what makes this guy tick. Thank you so much for your generosity, Mike. I really appreciate that gift. It was uh, really a very pleasant surprise. All right. Um, tie into something we actually discussed last Wednesday. Keeping it real wants to know how will they be able to rebuild Babylon and make it the world power during the tribulation? Well, keeping it real, the passage you're referencing is part of Ezekiel or Ezekiel Revelation chapter 17, and it was mentioned for the first time in Revelation 16 that Babylon was remembered before God to give him the wine of the cup of his wrath, and the nations fell. But when it goes on for the next two chapters to explain that new piece of information in detail, there's a few things that were given that gives us an idea of what's being talked about here, but we aren't able to narrow it down geographically. There's people who think that Babylon was Great Britain, that it was the U.S., that it was France, that it was the Ottomans, that it was whoever was the world-dominating power at the time. Napoleon, yeah. Yeah, yeah. but the uh, point of emphasis that we need to make when it comes to what the Bible says and what it doesn't say is what it actually says. And when people make the uh, even dovetailing on the whole, oh, well, it says uh, seven mountains on which the woman sits. That's Rome, because only uh, Rome is the city set on seven hills. Now there's about 80 of them, and they're all given around the same amount of details and credence. We aren't told what this city is or where it will be, but note that when the Antichrist is going to be uniting the entire world around him, both militarily, economically, and spiritually, a lot can get done very quickly. We don't know if it's actually Babylon and Iran. We do know that the Antichrist will be ruling from somewhere, because he will be there, <laughs> uh, physically on this world, bound by time and space. As far as the significance of it, uh, again, very poor teachers like uh, Alexander Hislop have made the insistence that it's Rome that will fall apart with a even Google searching of his main thesis that Rome is the city set on seven hills and finding out there are more than one city set on seven hills on the planet, even in Rwanda. Uh, there's also the theory that it's the United States that was popular until 2001. I'll let you guess why, but the point being made is just that. If we're talking about actual Babylon, again, 
power has shifted hands many times and in various ways. If we're talking about the reason why it would be referred to as Babylon, it's not because the location is what's keen, it's the history and the association behind it concerning idolatry. Uh, obviously, Genesis chapter 11, that's where idolatry was invented, the Tower of Babel, and that Babylon capital has basically been the spearhead or the byword among Jews and their scriptures for understanding idolatry's nature by representing it personified or geographicalized as Babylon. Now, if that's a little too much for you, let me just simplify this so that even I can understand what I'm saying. The point of emphasis in Revelation 17 isn't telling us you got to keep your eyes on Iran, especially their capital city. There's some shifty business going on there. Uh, Saddam Hussein's greatest ambition was to open a holiday inn, and we saw that that uh, obviously was thinking too small and didn't even amount to much anyway. But if, on the other hand, we're to take a step back and go, what do we know about Mystery Babylon? The answer is not much. We know that it's going to be an economic and a religious system. We know that God will judge it at the end of the tribulation, and we know that part of its judgment will be the Antichrist essentially throwing it aside in favor of his own system at the halfway point. So right. all that can be said for certain, but what we can't say for certain is where and when. If it does happen to be Babylon, then you owe me 10 bucks, but if not, then I don't think money's going to matter in heaven much anyway. Yeah, and, and you know, the only other thing I'd say is, uh, to add to that, is, uh, boy, keeping it real... Uh, it is amazing how, uh, I guess to quote the Eagles, everything can change in a New York minute. Uh, it doesn't take an awful lot of time for uh, really quite catastrophic uh, sea changes to happen as far as even the, uh, the world economic system is concerned. Consider what happened after 9-11. 3,000 people died when the trade towers were attacked. Uh, and uh, it took uh, the United States economy the better part of three years to recover. After all of that, uh, things were not the same economically in this world. Uh, the idea of the move towards globalism moved ahead by leaps and bounds, and uh, we're seeing ourselves in a set of circumstances right now where the uh, World Economic Federation uh, is uh, uh, essentially uh, flexing its muscles and its influence right now. Uh, it wouldn't take uh, an awful long time uh, put it this way, for things to change. So if we're talking about literal Babylon on its uh, previous uh, uh, foundations being rebuilt and being made into a center of uh, the world economy, be a lot that would recommend that, especially after an event called the rapture. If the United States is uh, removed from the scene as the 800-pound economic uh, gorilla in this world, uh, wouldn't it uh, make sense for the world to say, we need something more centralized. We need something that rallies us all together, something that speaks to the fact that there's nothing impossible for us to do as human beings. I know. Let's quote a Bible verse out of uh, context in uh, Genesis chapter 11 and uh, rebuild Babel for our glory now that these uh, terrible uh, reactionary born-agains are out of the way and who knows where they've gone? We can really get things going here. So very possible for that to be a literal foundation. Uh, is it necessary for it to be a literal foundation? No, but it's a very strong possibility. All right. And in the spirit of hyperliteralism, uh, Yari wants to know, is America Babylon? No, America is a series of two continents west of Europe and east of Asia. No, no Well, I think the, the question is, and it comes up, uh, when uh, people read about the fall of Babylon, in Revelation chapter 18, uh, a 
economic Babylon, a economic system that rises itself up in opposition to God, which is judged by God and is destroyed in a single day that has worldwide economic impact. There are always those who speculate and say, well, you know, it says merchants uh, and, and people that ply the, uh, the, their trade on the seas are going to look and, and uh, break their hearts because uh, they're going to see that the number one supplier of all these things is now gone. And because of that, some tried to wedge that in to uh, what happened in New York City on 9-11 and, and so forth. Well, um, what's the problem with that as far as the United States being Babylon in uh, Revelation chapter 18? Just one? Uh, well, start at the top. Well, at the top, again, that is reading a lot into the text, not out of it. If I impose something and shove it into the Bible, I'm not taking something out of the Bible and observing it. If we are given anything in the Bible, and this is a question that we've been meaning to get to for not some time, but certainly recently, is the United States mentioned in Bible prophecy? And the answer is no, just like Great Britain, just like France, just like the Ottomans, and just like anyone else that has held a large swath of world-dominating empire, or uh, world-dominating influence and financial repertoire. The whole point behind these insistences is basically just to sell books, and I can say that without worrying about contradictions. There are a lot of people who could make these sort of inferences into the text, but note that it is a fallacy, and we can talk about this maybe in our next rhetoric lesson, to commit what's called eisegesis, to read into the Bible what I want or think it ought to say, rather than to read out of it what it's plainly laying out. That is the biggest problem with a lot of the works that have been done trying to infer the United States' role in the land. excuse me, the end times, when it's simply an inappropriate inference. There are people throughout history who have made the uh, assumption, well, of course the Antichrist is going to rule from the the head of Great Britain from London, because that's just where the power is. Where else could it be? Then power shifted hands in the 1700s. Then we saw before that the French Empire. Well, of course, this is Napoleon the, Bonaparte. He's the Antichrist. Yeah, he's yeah. conquering the world. Yeah. He's the cruel king of the north. You get the idea. Well, so on it goes. But the point being made is that if there's going to be any reason for us to believe anything about the end times, it should be what the Bible hands to us, not what we're handed to other people with a bunch of Bible bumper stickers tacked onto it. Yeah, and you know, the other thing I would say about uh, Revelation 18, a lot of people do like to, uh, you know, put their two cents worth in as far as, uh, you know, where this Babylon is going to be or who it is. That's not the point of Revelation chapter 18. The point of Revelation chapter 17 and 18 is to be a vivid illustration of uh, of what I believe, a great exposition of 1 John chapter 2, uh, beginning at verse 15, where John wrote, Do not love the world, that is, not this geographic world that we live in, but the world system. That's where cosmos means. It doesn't mean the planet Earth, but it means the world system. Do not love the world, nor the things in the world, for all that is in the world the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life is not from God, but is of this world. And the world and the lust thereof is what? Passing away. And that's what we see in Revelation 16, or Revelation 17 and Revelation 18. Religious Babylon, the fallen religious system passing away, and commercial Babylon, the materialistic system, the one that says that the real meaning of the golden rule is the one with the most gold rules uh, passing away, being judged by the true 
and living God. That's what we see there. But then the last line of 1 John chapter 2 says, but the one who does the will of God abides forever. It's really fascinating to me when you read uh, Revelation chapters 17 and 18, which is a good thing to do, rather than just speculating uh, on uh, the ge geographic location being designated here. When you read it, we are told specifically that God's people are warned to come out of her and not be a part of her and not be dragged down with her. Now, that is a prophecy that will be directly fulfilled in the Great Tribulation period, but it is also a heavenly heads up to us not to get enamored, not to get entangled, not to become uh, lovers of this fallen world system that we live in. How do we do that? Well, when we believe that money can buy happiness, or we start believing the um, teachings of uh, well, false prophets and false teachers who say if you claim the right Bible verses in the right way, God is going to make you filthy rich. Uh, no, you know, that's loving the world and the things in the world. For those who teach false doctrine or set aside the clear teaching of God's word and say, no, 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 that was for then. My fresh takes today are more important. That's loving the world and the things in the world. We don't want to be a part of the fallen world system. God has called us out of the world system. Uh, Jesus said, because you're no longer a part of the world, uh, the world's going to hate you just like it hated me. But uh, we also realize that by leaving behind the things of this world, we're embracing a kingdom that can't be shaken. We're going to be inheritors of heavenly riches that are beyond our ability to comprehend. The greatest riches being having an unbroken, intimate, perfect relationship with our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, that's going to last forever. So make sure that those things are kept in mind. Um, got a question we received by email wondering, how do we know if we're a part of the elect? Obviously, this is something that's used more often than ought to be in Calvinistic circles, and those who hold to Calvinism or Reformed theology would put an emphasis on God's sovereignty at the expense of free will. When we're talking about this issue, it's usually understood and made out to be the point that the only people who will be saved are those whom are elect, and this is usually being taken from 1 Peter chapter 2 and the opening verses of his first epistle. As soon as I traverse the long stretch of concordance, let me read the passage. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to the pilgrims of the dispersion in Pontius, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, elect according to the foreknowledge of God the Father in sanctification of the Spirit for obedience and the sprinkling of the blood of Jesus Christ, grace to you and peace be multiplied. So in this introduction to Peter's first epistle, he's obviously addressing those who've been spread out among the nations, and specific mind the Jewish people, since he himself said in the book of Acts, those are the ones that he was called to right. minister to, yeah. but uh, not exclusively if you remember Cornelius and that whole fun conversation. The point, though, being made by people who would make this inference into the text is to say, elect according to the foreknowledge of God. Okay, so we have God's foreknowledge that determines election, that God knows who are His, which is biblical, that God knows whom He's called, which is right. biblical. Therefore, no one is capable of being saved apart from those whom God knew would already get saved to begin with. Now, again, at face value, you and I wouldn't contradict that in any way. It's based on some pretty straightforward biblical text. No, Romans chapter 8, uh, verses 29 through 30. Uh, you know, again, the famous uh, verse 28. We know that all, God works all things together for good for those who are loving, who are called uh, according to his purpose. 
For those whom God foreknew, these he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son. He might be the firstborn among many brethren. And those whom he predestined, these he also called. Those whom he called, these he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. So very clearly that idea of election is taught in Scripture. But the problem is the well then that usually follows, not what the text lays out, but what's assumed then as a philosophical necessity for these sort of things. Yeah, the, the big contention is this, in a nutshell, and it, and it gets down to the nub of the question. Uh, the, the question is, um, does God's election, his choosing of us, cause us to believe, or does the fact we believe cause God's election? And we would have to say, looking at the Scripture, the answer to that is yes. Both of those things are true at the same time. Uh, you know, so how does that, uh, that idea that there is a choice in salvation, that we have a choice and God has a choice in salvation, that there's never been an unplanned spiritual birth in the kingdom of God before the foundation of the world, he knew us. Okay, great. How do we know we're part of that group? Well, essentially the same way you would become a part of any group is have you accepted it on the terms of the one who invented the process. If I am yeah. saved according to God's election, then I ask, how do I get saved? And this is always the conversation that's brought up when people say, how do I know that I'm saved? How do I know that I'm elect? The terms would be interchangeable. Well, God's terms for salvation are fairly straightforward. If you believe that Jesus Christ was who he said he was and what he did to prove it, Romans chapter Chapter 10, verses 9 through 10 says, you will be saved. That is on the basis of his grace, not your merit. It's on the basis of God's goodness, not your genetic heritage. And there are people who argue that. It is on the basis of you taking at and on his terms, his conditions for that relationship, that you are, as Jesus himself notified, not uh, choosing him, but he chose you. He right. knew the decisions that were made since before the world began. Now, the inference that people make into this is saying, well, what if I'm not one of the elect? It's impossible for me to be saved even if I want to. And the best response in that situation, and even the Calvinist would agree, is, well, do you want to? Yeah. And they would say, well, no, I don't want to receive Jesus. Well, maybe you're not elect. They say, well, that's not fair. Why would God make me not one of the elect? Well, you can become elect right now. Do you want to receive him as your Savior? No, I think that's a bunch of garbage. Well, then it's really your choice, isn't it? Yeah. God was just going to, and yeah. literally does, understand who will receive him, but understand as well, you have the opportunity to receive him. Both are true. Yeah, and and you know, when I talk to people about this question, you know, it, uh, for some people it sounds like inside baseball and, you know, theological hair sp splitting, but when people ask that question, usually they're asking it because they really are, are struggling with the idea of doubt in their walk with God. Maybe they don't doubt that the God of the Bible is true. Maybe they don't even doubt that Jesus rose from the dead, but they doubt themselves. Uh, they, they, they say, oh, you know, well, how can I know that these things really apply to me? You know, here's the, the, the simplest explanation I can give to you. In the book of 1 Corinthians chapter 12, we are told that no one can say Jesus is Lord apart from the Holy Spirit. And uh, we are also told that uh, in Ephesians chapter 2, before we were saved, we were dead in our trespasses and sins but we were made alive by Christ. And so the, the easiest answer to the question, am I part of the elect, is to say, okay, let, the word elect means choice. Have you made a choice to receive Jesus as your Savior? 
If they go, well, yeah, but how do I know that just wasn't me? Well, the scripture's already told you that unless the Holy Spirit gave you the power to make that decision, you couldn't make that decision in the first place. You know, sometimes, Sean, I'm, I'm told by people, oh, if God would only do a miracle in my life. Uh, you know, I hear about these other people experiencing miracles, but, but I've never seen a miracle in, in my walk with God. Wait, time out. Uh, you were dead in your trespasses and sins. You weren't just a little off. You weren't just having a bad day. You just didn't have a few, you know, smudges and, and uh, you know, stripes against you that needed to be expunged. You're dead in your trespasses and sins, unable to save yourself. But God did a miracle when you put your faith and your trust in Jesus Christ. Now, ask yourself this question right now. Do you believe in your, uh, that Jesus is Lord, that he is God? Do you, uh, have you confessed with your mouth that uh, he is Lord? And do you believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead in a moment of history? If you believe that, congratulations, you are part of the elect. You didn't come to that conclusion by yourself, but you made that decision with your own free will. God chose you. You responded by choosing to say yes to God. Which one of these two things is more important in our salvation? It's like asking which wing of the airplane is more important to have intact at 30,000 feet. So, you know, one of the, the, the real, I think, spiritual dead ends, and I've seen this absolutely wreck some people's faith, is when they take a look at their performance for God and then say, I struggle with this sin and I always fall into this sin, so therefore... I'm not part of the elect. What would you say to somebody who came to you with that kind of spiritual crisis going on? Well, if they came to me, and I mean a proactive pursuit, then I would use that as evidence that they are, in fact, the elect, because conviction is one of the aspects of the Holy Spirit's role, not only on your life, but in your life. Because people who don't know Jesus, the Holy Spirit's one and only concern with you is to get you to Jesus. Right. We read John chapter 16, he lays out his purposes very clear. The world as a whole is being convicted of the fact they need a Savior. Those who are of the body of Christ are being convicted and made aware of their sin to join and or basically to grow in fellowship with Jesus Christ. Yeah. So if that's then the ongoing reality for the Christian, then for someone to say, man, the greatest proof of God in my life, I, I think I, God's not in my life anymore. Obviously, it sounds silly when you properly define terms, and yeah. that's what we want to encourage. Yeah, so, if you weren't a part of the elect, right, you wouldn't, you wouldn't care. care, you know? So, uh, yeah, I can't tell you how many times I've seen people, like, breathe a sigh of relief and go, wow, I never thought about that, you know? The, but, but here's where you get off track, and this is something that we would really like to spare you in your walk with God. If you base your sense of nearness and intimacy with God on your performance for God, you're going to ride the roller coaster for the rest of your life because some days you'll get it right, some days you'll get it wrong, some days uh, maybe you'll be overly condemning yourself when God isn't condemning you, some days you'll let yourself off the hook and there are real significant sin areas going on in your life. But you're going to ride this roller coaster as long as you look at yourself, as long as you look at Jesus and what he has done for you, not what you do for him, right, but what he does for you you can have amazing stability in your walk with God. Why? Because Romans chapter 5 and verses 6 through 8 says this, from we were still helpless at the right time. Christ died for the ungodly. For perhaps for a good man, someone might die, and for a righteous man, someone might even dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love towards us in that while we were what? 
sinners. Yet sinners, at our worst, Christ died for us. So, you know, I love that because what it tells me is God knew what he was getting into when he saved me. He saw when I'd get it right, and he saw when I would get it wrong. He did not save me because I had future potential. He did not save me because someday I would get my act together. He saved me on the basis of his mercy and grace alone. When I focus on that, then I know that nothing can separate me from God's love. I know that his nearness is with me. I know his promise is true. I will never leave you and never forsake you. But when I look at me and what I try to do for God, I'm like Peter getting out of the boat. I might walk a couple of steps on the waves and then I'm going to sink and yell out, Lord, save me. Fortunately, the Lord was always there to pull me up out of the drink before I drown. All right. Um, One more I think we got time for before we have to sign off. And for those joining us on the live stream, we will be re-uploading this to avoid all of the uh, glitches. We'll see what was going on with our software here in a minute. But this one's, I guess, worth mentioning. Uh, Dan Brown's Da Vinci Code. Is it full of truths or full of errors? You know, it reminds me of the earlier question where you said, where do I start? Yeah. Um, you know, the, the fact of the matter is the Da Vinci Code, uh, among other things, states that uh, the hidden truth of real Christianity is the worship of the divine feminine. Uh, they will say things like even the Jews themselves worshipped Shekinah, which is in Hebrew a feminine word that described the glory of God. But they said, no, that was their deity. Well, those are very important claims to make. They would say that uh, the true message of uh, Jesus and the Bible was uh, expunged by the uh, Council of Nicaea, uh, among other things, and replaced with a very uh, cis-normative gospel that uh, exalted men and did away with the divine feminine. Well, it's one thing to say that. It's one thing to put it into a potboiler novel and uh, you know, make it into a page-turner. But it's another thing to say that all of the historical references and statements here are accurate. None of those things is accurate. Let's just take one. Did the, the church change the Bible at the Council of Nicaea? wasn't even discussed and was already presumed in its complete status as we still know it today. You can verify this through the rudder of ecumenical councils, which took extensive notes of what was discussed at Nicaea involving the cult of Arianism, which wasn't questioning scripture, but the deity of Christ. It wasn't defining the Trinity, but Jesus' specific role as divine. And by the way, he lost that debate. So with all that being said, God bless you. and We'll see you all again tomorrow. You've been listening to A Reason for Hope. Thank you again for joining us as we continue our journey through God's Word, one question of the heart at a time. Until we meet again, we would love to connect with you. You can text or email your questions to questionsforhope at gmail.com. You can also find out more about our ministry at calvarychristianfellowship.com. And be sure to join us next time on A Reason for Hope. A Reason for Hope is an outreach ministry of Calvary Christian Fellowship in Tucson, Arizona.